This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... What, what I think that is important for us to note in all of this is the, the steep punishment that comes with advocating. Nigerian activist Obian Ujulonia welcoming the release of nine protesters who took part in 2020 demonstrations against police brutality. Details coming up. Also, a computer problem in the U.S. shuts down air traffic. Mali's army says three soldiers were killed and five wounded in clashes yesterday. And the Egyptian pound traded today at half its value from March. We have these stories and more on African News tonight. But first, our top story. Ethiopia's military says Tigrayan forces have started handing over heavy weapons as part of the peace deal to end the two-year-old civil war. Maya Mesekar reports from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Ethiopian Federal Defense Force in a statement Wednesday confirmed Tigray forces have started handing over heavy weapons, the latest progress in line with the November peace deal. The statement said the first round of weapons were transported on Tuesday in Agula Camp, 36 kilometers from Tigray's capital, Makale. Ethiopian Army Commander Lieutenant Colonel Alamit Abdullah said the arms transfer included tanks, rockets and mortars. The statement said observers from the African Union and various countries' militaries were present to verify the transfer from the Tigray People's Liberation Front. The confirmation came after TPLF spokesman Gita Choreda early Wednesday tweeted news of the handover. He said they hope and expect this will go a long way in expediting the full implementation of the agreement. The AU-brokered peace deal signed in South Africa saw the two sides agree the TPLF would disarm in return for restoration of aid and services to Tigray and withdrawal of foreign forces. The deal came after two years of devastating war that saw Tigray largely cut off from the rest of the world, hundreds of thousands of people killed and millions displaced. The two sides have met a few times in Kenya's capital, Nairobi, to discuss implementing the deal. Since December, Ethiopia has allowed humanitarian aid to enter Tigray and restored power, water, banking and telecommunications to the region. Witnesses say in late December, Eritrean troops who fought on the side of federal forces withdrew from two cities in Tigray. However, the TPLF accuses Eritrean troops of committing atrocities during the conflict and says they are still active in some areas of Tigray. Maya Misakar for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Nigerian activists have welcomed the release of nine protesters who took part in 2020 demonstrations against police brutality. Nigeria's Oyo State released the nine Tuesday along with scores of other prisoners to decongest the state's overcrowded jails. But activists say about 30 protesters are still detained on charges ranging from looting to murder. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja, Nigeria. The protesters were released along with 32 prisoners held at Agodi Custodial Center in southwestern Oyo State. They had been held since October 2020 without trial after they were arrested during the nationwide protests against the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, the SARS unit of the Nigerian police. 
Their clemency was part of the state authorities' three-day tour to the state prisons in a bid to decongest them. A total of 99 prisoners were released across the state based on age, health status and length of detention. The Oyo State Chief Judge, Justice Monta Ladipo Abimbola said, quote, Everyone should lay to rest the trouble and heartbreaks associated with the dark times in the country's history, end quote. And SARS activist Obianuju Iloanya welcomes the protesters' release. It's a good thing that they have been released. At least they can now get back to their lives. So what, what I think that is important for us to note in all of this is the, the steep punishment that comes with advocating. And this is why when you tell people, oh, let's, let's go out, let's demand for better, it seems like Nigerians are docile. And, but that's not the truth. The truth is that the punishment is steep and people are scared of this high punishment. In October 2020, thousands marched the streets for days, demanding authorities disband the SARS police unit. The unit was often accused of extrajudicial killings, torture and extortion. The protests ended in the deadly shooting of at least 11 people by Nigerian security forces the night of October 20 and police say more than 20 officers were killed. Nigerian authorities also arrested and detained dozens of protesters. About 30 are yet to be freed. Oyo State-based human rights lawyer Hussein Afolabi says SARS officers still need to face the law. So many officers who were named as very corrupt and terrible officers. We don't know what, we don't know what fate befell them. They just left where they're still in the Nigerian police force committing more atrocities, killing, raping, maiming, extorting, they're still there. Last October, Nigerian Interior Minister Ralph Arebeshola said about 70% of inmates in various Nigerian prisons have never faced trial. This leads to overcrowding of detention centers. As a result, NSARS activists are hoping authorities will soon free other protesters being held. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Officials from the U.S., France and the United Kingdom criticized the use of Russian mercenaries in Africa at a briefing of the U.N. Security Council on West Africa and the Sahel on Monday. U.S. Deputy Ambassador to the U.N., Richard Mills, accused mercenaries of Russia's Wagner Group of robbing countries of their resources, committing human rights abuses, and endangering the safety of UN peacekeepers and staff. France's political counselor, Isis Jaroud Dakno, said the model used by Wagner to help fight Islamic extremists in West Africa is totally ineffective and uh, its violations include the alleged killing of over 30 civilians in Mali. Britain's deputy UN ambassador, James Karuki, said the mercenaries have contributed to instability in Mali, Burkina Faso, Nigeria and the Lake Chad Basin. In response, Russia's deputy UN ambassador, Anna Ivstineva, accused Western countries of looting and pillaging throughout the world and in Africa, including Libya. She said African leaders should resolve their own problems and decide who they want to cooperate with. You're listening to Africa News Tonight, live on The Voice of America. 
I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington. Please note we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. The representative of the European Union is urging the Sudanese parties to reach a civilian government as soon as possible, leading to the organization of elections. The final agreement includes five issues, justice and transitional justice, security and military reform, review and evaluation of the peace agreement, dismantling the regime of the June 30, 1989, and the issue of Eastern Sudan. VOA senior analyst Mohammed El-Shanawi discussed how feasible it is to reach agreements on these challenging issues with Joseph Siegel, director of research at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. These are challenging issues to resolve. We should make no mistake about that. And I think foremost among these issues is the one of justice. There's deep-seated anger and resentment at the military for betraying the 2019 revolution and derailing the democratic transition process with its October 2021 coup to maintain control and to squash the opposition. The military has killed hundreds of protesters and detained many others. So Sudanese citizens are rightfully distrustful of the military and they're demanding justice. However, you know, the military is unlikely to go forward with a transition unless they're able to negotiate some protections from prosecution. And this points to the need for some measure of compromise from all sides, you know, that will result in a transition where there's a civilian-led democratic government, but the military retains a respected role in Sudanese society. And you know, there are tangible incentives for the military to proceed with this transition. They are deeply unpopular and blame for all of Sudan's problems, having been in power for most of the last 30 years. And these problems are getting worse economically. Sudan has hyperinflation. It's been in economic decline for a number of years now. There's growing debt. And everyday citizens are having difficulty accessing basic supplies. Moreover, international actors have conveyed to the military that there will not be significant investment and development assistance in Sudan unless there is a civilian government in place. And really, there's no scenario for how Sudan reverses course economically unless there is sizable amounts of foreign investment that comes into the country. So there are reasons why the military would want to proceed. And you know, this includes also, from a security perspective, the advantages of having a, a single unified uh, chain of command uh, compared to the highly fragmented security sector that Sudan currently has. So while there are significant challenges, the, you know, maintaining the status quo is also not a viable option. And so I think if we see all sides bargain in good faith that the possibility of reaching an agreement on these outstanding issues is a real possibility. So if the framework agreement led to a civilian democratic government, how would that impact the Sudan economic crisis? I think it would impact it in a number of ways. Number one, you would have technically competent individuals managing the ministries, and they would also have credibility with international donors and investors. And there would be more confidence that there would be genuine change in the way business is done. 
you know, over the 30 years of the military-led government in Sudan, the government has become highly dysfunctional and corrupt. And so very few international actors want to pour money into that system. At the same time, you know, Sudan has a lot of potential partners. And, you know, during the early days of the transition in 2019, there was quite a lot of international support and some debt forgiveness and other financial assistance that came into the country. And we saw improvements in the economic conditions. And so Sudan is in a very deep hole right now. Economically, it's going to take a long time to dig out of it, but they also have great potential. And there's just, uh, I think, a, a big upside to where the country can go if you have uh, capable and accountable leaders in place. That was Joseph Siegel, Director of Research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, speaking with VOA's Mohamed Al-Shanawi. A computer outage at the Federal Aviation Administration, FAA, delayed thousands of flights this morning. The FAA lifted its order after it restored the system that provides pilots with pre-flight safety notices. The U.S. government says it is investigating the cause of the outage, including the possibility it could have been caused by a cyber attack. VOA's Carol Van Dam spoke about the issue with Claire Bushy. Chicago correspondent for the Financial Times, who covers the U.S. aviation and automotive industries. They have said that it was, the federal government has been downplaying the idea that it was a cyber attack, but they have not said what uh, actually caused it. They have said that more information is going to be released later. We understand that there were more than 4,000 delays in or out of the U.S. as of a little before 9 o'clock this morning. According to FlightAware, that's that flight tracking website. Does that track with what you're hearing? Uh, yes, we, we have the Financial Times reported that uh, about 4,000 flights had um, been delayed with 700 canceled in the United States. And it's now after 11 o'clock Eastern time. As far as you know, um, are most of these flights, you know, back up and running on a, on a delayed flight schedule? You know, they are trying to um, to get up and running again. United Airlines has extended a waiver to many of its customers if they need to reschedule or to cancel their trip because of this. Um, but, yes, I mean, the domestic system is slowly getting uh, back to business as usual. Early on, the agency said, and by that I mean the FAA, said the notice to air mission systems had failed, but that some systems were coming back online. Do you know any more about that? Notice to air missions is a alert system that tells pilots about hazards that they might be facing uh, all across the United States at various airports or on various routes. And it feeds in information from hundreds of sources, everything about wildfires to the Department of Defense and whether or not military operations um, or practice operations are taking place. And so there are literally hundreds of um, feeds of information that go into this system. 
And, you know, we're coming off this time just a couple of weeks ago where it was crazy around the holidays, traveling season, and there was this big backup, especially with Southwest Airlines. And do you think that this is going to affect travelers and their decision about, you know, booking reservations, uh, one on top of the other? Southwest delays were caused by something different. And um, but yes, certainly when you have a lot of high profile um, delays and cancellations in a country that's really dependent on air travel, it catches people attention. But there's not really a whole lot of options. I, I um, spoke with an analyst uh previously who said that, you know, these major delays and cancellations in service, whether it's like what we saw with Southwest or what's happened today that was caused by the FAA, they don't really change people's um, travel behavior. They don't really change airlines. They don't really travel less. Uh, People huff and they puff and they get upset and understandably so. But when you need to fly, you need to fly. Claire Bush, a Chicago correspondent for the Financial Times, she was speaking with VOA's Carol Van Dam. The French news agency, AFP, says the Egyptian pound traded today at half its value from March after the central bank intervened again as part of an international monetary fund loan agreement. The news service says the pound traded in state banks at 29.8 against the dollar at the end of the day after recovering from an earlier drop. The pound brings about 35 pounds per dollar on the parallel market. The IMF approved a $3 billion loan to Egypt in exchange for measures aimed at reducing an inflation rate of nearly 22% in December and a yearly price increase for food of nearly 40%. Cairo's foreign debt currently stands at $157 billion. The government has promised to cut spending as part of the deal with the IMF. President Paul Kagame said Monday Rwanda could could no longer offer refuge to people fleeing violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo. But a day later, government spokesperson Yolanda Makolo said Rwanda had no intention to expel or ban refugees. She accused the media of misrepresenting Kagame's remarks. The crisis group's Richard Monserif the interim director for the Africa Great Lakes says, as far as Kinshasa is concerned, it views the Rwanda discourse as a ploy, among other things, to cover up Rwanda's reported co- collaboration with the rebel M23 group. Well, first of all, and at the heart of uh, the situation is the M23 insurgent movement, which has uh, expanded its operations in North Kivu province, has fought with the National Army, fought with non-state armed actors in North Kivu, has up until recently expanded around the north of Goma, which is the large city uh, capital of North Kivu, right on the Rwandan border. Now, the uh, authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo accuse Rwanda of supporting the M23, and the Rwandans deny this. So that's the heart of the top-level political dispute that's been roiling in the Great Lakes for around about a year, uh, let's say since the end of 2021, when the M23 started to expand its activity. So how does this fit into the refugee situation? Sure. Well, the, the link is 
that the M23 were uh, operating in North Kivu and indeed um, took over Goma uh, in 2012 and in 2013 were persuaded to withdraw um, under military pressure and diplomatic persuasion. And they withdrew into both Uganda and Rwanda. And Rwanda took the M23 in and housed them in camps entirely transparently uh, under an internationally sponsored agreement. There was nothing um, untoward about that by any means. Um, and Rwanda has uh, absorbed the uh, refugees from DR Congo, just as the Democratic Republic of Congo has absorbed Rwandan refugees, of course, since the um, terrible uh, genocide of 1994. So there's been refugee movements in both directions. Now, the M23 in the uh, Rwandan telling are Congolese and are refugees. And, and this is where it starts to get controversial, uh, according to the Rwandans, are being blocked from returning to the Congo and claiming their full rights as Congolese citizens. Now, the Congolese deny this. The Congolese claim that any Congolese citizen is welcome back. And uh, the Congolese suspect that the Rwandan discourse about refugees is actually a distraction and a cover to try to put pressure back on Congo and, of course, also put pressure back on humanitarian organizations who deal with refugees and provide some kind of cover or perhaps distraction from Rwanda's uh, reported uh, collaboration with the M23. So in the middle, refugees are suffering. So what is the solution overall to the problem? Well, I think the first solution is to try to bring more stability to North Kivu province in particular, and more broadly, east of the DRC, because that will allow the conditions for refugees to return and to rebuild their lives in their own uh, countries. I think also the top level diplomacy and the relationships between the heads of state needs to be uh, calmed down, if not entirely sorted out, which is fairly ambitious. Um, so that refugees don't get caught up in uh, high-level politicking and, you know, as you say, are suffering greatly in this situation. Uh, just to underline, uh, obviously, President Kagame recently was talking about uh, refugees from the DR Congo in Rwanda, but we have a bigger and broader displacement crisis in the Great Lakes, including refugees, but also internally displaced people who are fleeing violence. Just in the last couple of months, indeed, mainly in November, um, the UN has counted 180,000 newly displaced people in North Kivu, and that's uh, in large part due to the expansion of the activities of the M23 and then, of course, fighting with the uh, with the National Army and with other armed groups. So that's a, a, a huge number of people whose lives have been ripped up. And many of them, of course, are re-displaced. They've been uh, already displaced by violence, living in refugee camps, and they're then turfed out of refugee camps to go and try and find a home somewhere else. Uh, so it's certainly a terrible experience for them. The DRC, along with the United States, several European countries, they have repeatedly accused Rwanda of backing the Tutsi-led rebels from M23, although Kigali keeps denying the charges. Uh, will these uh, denials hold up? 
is not so much that Rwanda becomes more transparent about what it's doing in North Kiva. I find that very unlikely. I think what we need to hope is that top-level diplomatic pressure uh, can have some impact on uh, Kigali's support for this insurgent group. That was Richard Monsarif, the crisis group's interim director for the Africa Great Lakes. He talked with me from Lille in France. A Liberian man convicted of war crimes is seeking to overturn the judgment at an appeals court in Switzerland today. A Swiss court with universal jurisdiction sentenced Aliyu Kosai, a former rebel commander who fought in Liberia's civil wars throughout the 1990s and early 2000s to 20 years in prison in 2021 for rape, murder, and an act of cannibalism. The indictment has been expanded to include crimes against humanity. Kosia Loras' lawyers say he was a minor when he was recruited as a child soldier and that he was not present when the crimes were committed. Among those testifying is a woman who was raped and a man who says he saw the defendant eat a man's heart. The trial was, will last until February 3rd and three judges will decide the case later this year. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Nicole Beckford, and our engineer, Cedric Franklin, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.